today on the Emmaus Institute for Disciple Making podcast. Brian Abernathy and Ben Seals unpack the final chapters of Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor. All right, well, <clears throat> let me pray for us and we will jump into chapter 11 and 12. So, uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, this reminder as we're coming to a conclusion, Lord, um, the reference point and the reminder of um, the framework that you give us for our work, Lord, um, the, the compass, the, uh, the audience, Lord, of so many things of uh, the way that you design work that we can be shown maybe for a first time or reminded of. Uh, but even in that reminder, it's the uh, the recognition that these are things that we wrestle with and things that um, come and go, and it's not just a light switch we get to flip and uh, change in perspective naturally changes everything that plays out in our lives, Lord, but it's that wrestling and that tension of um, the world and our flesh and uh, and all that, that wrestles against that, and Lord, that's sanctification. And so we just thank you for uh, the work of sanctification that you... Uh, call us into and and provide strength for us. And um, as we uh, wrap up this, Lord, I pray that um, I I know it has been true for me, but Lord, I just pray that these conversations and these reminders would would be encouraging and be uh, convicting and and, um, uh, beneficial for each one of us, Lord, that uh, there would be things that uh, we're able to move forward and carry in to to change the way we live and, and work and treat others on a day-to-day basis. So uh, we pray for your blessing over uh, our time tonight, and we thank you for uh, five weeks now of uh, just great conversation. And, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work with the truth that we've discussed uh, in each of our hearts. It's in your name. <clears throat> so uh, New Compass for Work, talking a lot about ethics, um, which is an interesting subject, I think, just culturally today in general. Um, So that first question there, um, curious about experience and exposure to, uh, or temptation, as it says, to unethical behavior uh, in your workplace, uh, environments that you've found yourself in, uh, whether it's just witnessing it or finding yourself in the midst of potentially compromising, uh, whatever it might be. Yep. <laughs> 2019, the, the company I last worked with, um, I had managed a pro- supervised a project another team member was managing the year before, uh, so in 2018, and um, transitioned into supervising him in that project. It was about three-fourths of the way done and um, came into a spot and discovered he had been blatantly lying to us, blatantly lying to our client, potentially... Uh, creating fraudulent documents, though 
I think I'm the only person that ever saw those, which may be good because it kept anybody from getting sued. But um, just very quickly discovered this guy had had, had been lying and, and stealing, in effect, uh, through that lying. Um, <clears throat> and, and found myself in the situation where I was addressing grievances with the board for that client um, and at the same time trying to, as we were realizing some of this stuff, trying to manage that individual prior to firing them. Um, so all that stuff kind of passes, you know, conclusion of the project, we, uh, we were fired and then 10 months later we get a lawsuit. Um, the company and that individual, I was uh, gratefully specifically not named in the lawsuit. Um, but in those conversations of some of the, some of the most uncomfortable and uh, just nasty conversations I've ever been in back and forth with their team and their lawyers and ours and um, believe that the reason I was not named was because of the way that I, I was just honest with the client, their board, like I, I did not try to sugarcoat things, but in those deliberations and sort of back and forth uh, with the, the lawsuit, saw just blatant lies from the guy that I worked for. Of um, They had a, this is the way this was presented, and then it was, nope, that's not true. And I'm sitting there thinking, that's 100% true because I was on the call or I was there or whatever. And it was just like, never felt so, um, I don't even know the word. Like I had some absurd, absurd heart issues that summer just in terms of high blood pressure and stress and all that, that ultimately led to my leaving that company. But uh, in reading this, that that's, that's what came to mind. That's been the most, one of the most, uh, unethical things I've ever even experienced in my career, but definitely the most uh, close to or exposed to that type of thing um, that I have seen. And uh, just to think how, how normal I think that probably is in a lot of contexts, but uh, it made me, made me grateful uh, that I was honest uh, in my interactions with those folks, for sure, because uh, it was a nasty situation. I mean, I've, I've managed several people who tell me something's in the pipeline, something's coming, you know, it's coming down the pipe for, for closing out business and them kind of fabricating whatever relationship they have with the client and what they're buying and everything else and having to address that. That happens almost quarterly. Mm -hmm. Somebody comes in and then corrective actions taking place. Sometimes it's inadvertent at times, or they maybe just forecast wrong or something. And then sometimes it's absolutely fabricated. And we have to address that and walk the person out the door because they've been lying for X amount of time. I think like time stealing as well is interesting to think about through those things, right? So like you hire somebody to, to work X amount of hours per week. And they're, they're in front of Facebook for half the day, you know, it's not really, 
for stealing time for the company, right? So, so yeah, I think it's because of a lot of different roles. You know, we're going to get into the next chapter as well. But yeah. How do we work? one of the one of the challenges for me is like I I tend to view the world as a little more gray than black and white and you know you're you're talking about time stealing I was in a conversation today with our HR team at work and we were talking about how there's this big push to remote work and we can't you know necessarily track everybody's keystrokes and exactly how productive they are but we had an employee um we actually, we, we did a series of audits on an entire subset of employees who worked remote. And we found three individual employees who were clocking in and on the clock, but not logging any clicks in the system. So we, we pulled those three individuals in and HR was ready to just terminate them all. And one of the employees, you know, the two, two of the employees who were longstanding employees like didn't even put up a fight. They were just like, yeah, whatever. People who've been with the organization for a decade or more, um, and that's in <coughs> itself disheartening. But then one of the employees was on the other end of that, took an interesting route of, well, you said I could only clock in from eight to five, but I've got this two hour window in the middle of the day where I gotta pick up my kids. So if you go back and look at my keystrokes, I account for the entire time that I'm gone and I give it back to the company after hours. And so she was abiding by some absurd rule that we came up with at some point in time to meet our needs. But ultimately she wasn't stealing from the company. She was trying to work within the confines of some personal challenges she had herself mm. and was making up the time after hours and was super productive, but was working a flex schedule that we couldn't accommodate. Um, and so I don't know that that gray area is sometimes I feel like is the hardest thing for me to lead through as a people leader like my team wants X or they want to dismiss somebody for whatever reason and you know I, I want to lead towards like what was the motive was it malicious was their intent to steal from the company or were they was there something else going on and being a little more gracious or perhaps liberal in the interpretation of what our policies are um, but it's not black and white mm. and that can be tough sometimes something I've seen a lot is uh, <coughs> folks you know, being dishonest or maybe fabricating or make, embellishing like their own accomplishments or their own contributions to try to get a step ahead or to try to, you know, get a, a new role or promotion or whatever, and, you know, they'll fabricate or, or they'll try to make themselves look a lot better, um, you know, to the bosses or to whoever else. Um, and, you know, when we're trying to be honest, and so it's just people will do whatever they can to try to get side but something I deal with every day is um, a lot of times our, our leaders or managers want to like if they have an associate they're not scheduling hours for in 
instead of just telling them why, because their performance will just, we have kind of an automated system, they just blame the system. Say, hey, this isn't, this is yeah. why. And, and it's just, it's just something that drives me crazy. It's, it's, I'm just, I tell them, just tell them why. Or whether it's a counseling situation or a confrontation, just taking the easiest and simplest thing that you can, instead of actually like investing in an individual or explaining to them what's going on, happens pretty much yeah. daily yeah. and I mean it's a temptation for, for me too but at the same time like I just yeah they can't no one can grow if you don't tell them what they need to do so is sugarcoating or finding ways to dodge hard news unethical That's a hard spot for me. <clears throat> I don't enjoy those conversations. Um, but I like that's where I find myself is like it's if I don't address this, I'm effectively lying, right? Like if I come up with some other reason, I've got to have a conversation with a team member Friday about shifting their role. Um, and some of it is to a different lane, or all of it's to a different lane. Some of it's because they've got some unique experience that could play very well there, but really it's these things have not been up to par. Um, and so I, I can't just say we want to move you over here I, or I'm lying to the guy, right? So I don't like those conversations. That's, that is a tempting place for me. Um, you want to be treated that same way, right? Mm-hmm. Yep.
So I find those conversations easier, still not fun, but easier in the church context than in the professional context because there is at minimum, and you know, it's not often, but there have been times where, you know, as elders, we've had to have some of those kind of hard conversations with folks. And the really beautiful thing in those conversations is the commonality of the gospel, right? So it's a... We share, uh, as, you know, to use some of the analogies out of this, we share the same compass. We share the same audience. Uh, and we agree upon those things. So it's this, we're together versus the way I, I feel like it often ends up in professional settings of, of a for and against, right? Um, to, to jump further on into the chapter, you know, talking about Ephesians, the slave and the master, the, the employee and the employer and all that. And, um, that's where I feel like it's, it's typically a gift to get to work with other believers that share this mindset. Uh, but then sometimes, too, I have experienced uh, even recently where believers are the hardest in this uh, context and the non-believers are more willing to step in and have candid, honest conversations and receive feedback well and not be... Um, they represent some of the ways that a Christian should be characterized in the worst workplace better than some of the Christians, you know, which is, uh, I think will probably always happen in the world. But uh, I think a, a, a good resource on this is there's a book called Radical Candor. It's really good. Um, we read through it. I had my leadership team read through it because we were all, when I joined the organization in 2017, over a the first 18 months were relatively stable and then the next 36 months we replaced all five senior leaders in the organization with the exception of every seat got replaced one lady came back into a senior role from another position that she was in when i joined the company but like we didn't have a framework for how we were going to address the tension of like we have to work together as a team but at the same time like we need to be able to hold each other accountable to a bar of performance that we set for our organization or for our team. Um, and it just gives you some good framework around like the idea of, you may have seen memes about this, but like clear is kind comes from that. So Philip Renee Brown takes it in her uh, Gary Lee book. But like the idea that like if you're not clear in your feedback and you try to do like the sandwich method where it's like, you're really good at this, but I really need to talk to you about how bad you are at this. But you're really good at this. Like, that's not clear. Like, people get this mixed whipsaw, whiplash effect of, like, what, what are you trying to tell me? And some people can do that really well. I can't. Um, I tend to spend more time talking about the sugar and less mm. about the salt of the um, conversation. But it's a really good resource. Uh, Crucial Conversations is another really good one that I like so that we can continue to recommend at least two books a week. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so it kind of jumps into this, and it's on two or three in my book, but somewhat to that end, um, in taking a stand against unethical behavior, but I think it plays into the topic here. Uh, we're to be honest, compassionate, and generous, not because these things are rewarding, but because they're the right in, they are right in and of themselves. 
because to do so honors the will of God and his design for human life. Um, so we, we, you know, talked a little bit last week about that idea of leading people and thinking of that as discipleship. And part of discipleship is, is candor um, and direct communication, but communication with grace, um, but not skimping on the truth in that. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, the co-workers and boss or uh, direct reports uh, even implications, I think, in this chapter are unique to the others. Um, I'm interested in, uh, as, as the Ephesians paradigm where it talks through the perspectives of uh, Old Testament relationships of slaves and masters as um, laborers and managers. Uh, where did or or did any of this chapter change the way you think about the people you work with, for, or over, and how? Any change in uh, how you think about students, Zeke? I'm just curious because that's such a unique dynamic than any of the rest of us encounter in that they're not necessarily uh, working for you, nor are they your paying customers exactly. No, I don't, I don't think so. I think kind of, I'll be honest, it's game and shot. That's fair. <laughs> uh, so I don't, I don't know if anything changes how I kind of approach them, um, trying to understand I try to teach my students like everybody has a value. Everybody has value in the classroom, whether you're the kid with the best grade or the worst grade. You always have value, and one way I do that is I make them talk. I make them uh, speak, um, and they hate it. But sometimes, you know, uh, kind of go back to that idea of sugarcoating when they give you a completely wrong answer, trying to find a little smidget of something that's right and say, no, you do have something in there. Um, but I think it goes to, you know, just treating them with respect um, with every circumstance um, and treating them. I, I get to deal with high schoolers, so I can talk to them like an adult. Um, shoot straight, try to shoot straight whatever they're saying. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like I think about, you talk about a recommendation. Like I've had students walk up to me and say, will you write me a recommendation? I said, this is who I saw you in my class. You sat there and played on your phone. You did nothing in class. You want me to write your recommendation and all that? <laughs> and so kind of just kind of be honest and say who I see them as mm-hmm. um, and try to be straight with them, I guess. So I don't really think it, it changes. Uh, I think it's probably a, a reaffirm, but I can really kind of treat them as. Yeah. How do high schoolers receive that knowledge? I'm curious if it is any different than – I'm curious if the people that I work with are any better at, than high schoolers at that <laughs> – yeah. When you tell somebody to their face, I think it's probably something that's not done enough at a young age. And thinking about like 
what happens in high school that these kids carry into the workforce. Like, mm. um, you know, think about like, cheating. Like, if kid is uh, cheating and, you know, everybody's cheating. So, like, going to the book, like, everybody's lying about how much they make to try to get a little bit of increase, you know. And I think kids look at it like, well, everybody's cheating. So, therefore, it's okay because I'm not getting a leg up on them because they're cheating as well. So, we're all equal. And kind of that idea. Um, but I think, you know, Um, yeah, how high schoolers maybe get better by the time they're my employees at taking hard uh, news. But I think, I think they, they, they enjoy, they, they respect that face. Yeah. Face. Like, hey, this is what I see. This is, that's done. Like, straight up, like, you're an idiot. Why are you doing that? Like, that's not, that's not acceptable. Um, and kind of those hard conversations and just bring it straight to them and say, and I think there's always that like shame, that initial, but then as time passes, uh, it does build rapport mm. with them. Yeah. Yeah. I just feel like I have any of your students in my organization. <laughs> it's always like, I feel like it's like day three, they want a promotion. And after like three months, they want to like run the company. And there's this, just this entitlement, like, yeah, I was actually thinking to that end, um, and I forget how he how he addresses it in the chapter. Um, it's more around the family, right? He kind of jumps into this. It's near the end. Um, <clears throat> this is in the Christian ethics in your vocation, uh, and he talks about um, the outsourced life, intimate life in market times. This uh, author, critical Christopher Lash talks about how family has long been a haven in a heartless world uh, and then sort of how some of that stuff breaks down where you can compartmentalize and buy people uh, pay people <laughs> buy people's not the right word pay people to mourn for you pay people you know whatever right um, and it it kind of makes me in that line of conversation think about like the HR world right where there's some things that I just can't be direct about that are issues for some folks on my team um, because then that could qualify as something that could be construed as discriminatory. Um, and I had a, a team member two years ago um, file a discrimination suit because I called him out on something that had nothing to do with discrimination and had to do with usurping authority and going around a supervisor to someone else that they should not have done. And, uh, and it's just like, at that point, it was, I'm out. HR's handling this. I, like, it, right or wrong, it, whether that's the right way to have the conversation, it's like, at that point, we find ourselves culturally in a spot where it's just, I, I, I'm, I can't be a part of the conversation anymore. So those are... Uh, I think of that as like the, the oh, we'll, we'll find the surrogate to mourn or, you know, pay the person to spread loved one's ashes, um, all those things um, that become barriers that are such cultural norms um, where, I mean, yeah, I think of countless uh, stories from conversations with team members just in the last few weeks. Most of 
the team that I lead are independent contractors, so they're often um, consultants in their own right as well as consultants for us. So they, they do a lot of hodgepodging stuff and working with some organizations that um, one international nonprofit that just, no, they don't, uh, they won't have conversations, they won't fire people, they'll just pile crap work on folks until they leave. And it's like, oh, that's encouraging, you know, it's good that it's, you know, and you know what the organization is and it makes you even more discouraged because it's like, really? That's just horrible. Um, but I think a lot of that tends to be the norm. Um, and I don't know, like I just said, I don't know how to navigate that personally. Like, I don't think it's healthy, but then I'm also, I'm playing that line when it comes to those situations that are in that gray area from an HR standpoint, because it's not worth the risk. It's hard to say. It, I don't know that it's worth the risk to me, and I put my whole company in jeopardy uh, in terms of, uh, you know, some of those things, so. That's a that's a, an interesting tension point that I don't know. I don't know where the upside or the right side of that one is. Full disclosure. So, I think one of the most uh, intriguing aspects of this chapter, and then we'll we'll move on. Um, uh, question five on the dis- discussion page. Uh, how do the following five ways help us learn to be guided by wisdom? So that context of wisdom, discernment uh, around this, of knowing God, knowing yourself, learning from experience, the Word, um, specifically Proverbs, and then the Holy Spirit. Um, how does that paradigm of seeking and applying wisdom uh, play into your life and really your walk with the Lord in general, because I think that's one of those things that you, I don't know that wisdom is compartmentalized in our lives. I think it's one of those things that uh, as the Lord reveals it to us and gives it to us, um, it spreads over. But among those five things, um, where are maybe the easiest and the hardest places to be able to find and apply wisdom? Knowing myself is the one that I feel slowest at from all of those. Um, and I think my go-to, just because it's, it's been a habit for so many years, is Proverbs. Um, I may have mentioned before I was discipled by a guy for many, many years. And uh, from the time we started meeting together, um, he instilled, uh, hey, at, there's 30 pro- 31 Proverbs, 31 days in a month. There's wisdom for every single day of the week. And uh, um, still to this day with a very high degree of consistency, if, uh, if nothing else, uh, it's very common that at least I will read the proverb most every single day um, and consistently find uh, going into board meetings Monday morning for the day and reading proverbs and reading about abundance of wisdom coming from multiple counselors and a wise man 
holds his tongue and, and reserves his speech so he's not thought a fool and just things that probably read Proverbs 11 a thousand times and yet reading it, it was the things that stood out that were wisdom for me in that day specifically. So that's the, um, that's the easiest to go to place for me out of those. Um, those lists, I'll, I'll find it. It's under, I think it is under a different set of, or a different source of guidance. Um, no, a different source of guidance. Um, so it's 210 in my book, um, 215. I love this. This is on the um, under we must know ourselves what I'm worst at. Many bad decisions stem from an inability to know what we are and are not capable of accomplishing. Um, And I tend to be pridefully overconfident and arrogant in what I can accomplish. And that typically fares poorly for me. I think for me, I I struggle with that same thing. And I like even as minuscule is like setting a timeline for a meet. Like I can I can set an agenda and set an expectation of like we want to work through the this thing, this one thing or these three things and like I am woefully unable to adequately judge time on it. And so there you know and it's it's actually a point of uh, humor inside of our leadership team. Like they usually pad our by week, by monthly leadership meetings because I'll come up with an agenda. I'll be like, oh, that has plenty of time. And it never is. Um, just, and so it's, it's one of those things like I'm not good at. I think those are one of the easier things to learn from experience. Because like as a developer, you can figure out different strategies of how to solve a solution. And some things that I did like year one of my career, I think back now, I'm like, oh, that's the easiest thing I ever think of. Yeah. I think for me, I feel like um, wisdom through the Holy Spirit is probably the easiest and the hardest. Um, I feel like, you know, the moments where you're, you know, I'm still enough or listening, tuned in enough, where I feel like I can hear clearly and or something where you just have a check in your spirit. Like you just know this is not, you don't have a peace. This is not what God wants you doing. And for me, it almost comes up every day because you know, part of medicine is you go through your whole encounter and then you have to go back and do all this documentation. And that's usually like well after the fact and sometimes I'll be like, man, I didn't do this thing. And there's always that temptation like, well, the note would look better if you said that. Mm. That one God has already caught me on like, no, it's going to be incomplete note. <laughs> Just write what you did. Um, so some things are easier. And then there are other things where my voice of 
fear or whatever is so loud that you can't, I can't even hear mm. what is the Holy Spirit saying in this particular situation. So that I feel like is sometimes the easiest and the hardest. Mm. Yeah, thanks. Uh, any other closing thoughts, comments around uh, this chapter, New Compass for Work? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. You know, just kind of thinking through the Norman Friedman's approach to like ethics, right? Or like the, the purpose of the, the loss behind the business is to hold the wealth right and doing what's right there. And the second marketplace versus like the Christian worldview of ethics, right? And mm -hmm. as far as a couple years ago, with the case study where they were just advocating a bunch of accounts to make themselves look good and you know, bake the books a little bit and shareholder wealth was growing and all of a sudden they got found out and all of a sudden they had their, what do they call it, their re refounded in 2020 or 2021, whatever their innovation and tech whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's like you get slapped on the wrist heavily for doing things unethically. It's interesting, like, because business ethics, like a class in university or whatever, is different than Christian ethics. So yeah. Like, you know, we're, we're called to do as Christians to obey the Bible. So, you know, we're talking about this in church a few months ago, but, like, we're called to, like, honor the king to, like, obey the Bible, right? And so, like, that, it's interesting that the, the differences between what, what the world may think is ethics and what we view as ethics. And even the marketplace links to Christian ethics are Hobby Lobby, Chick-fil-A, Right, and no fault to those organizations or their leadership or their worldviews, but they're the examples that come up because they're the highly profitable examples, right? They're the ones that are making the money. How many tens of thousands probably of, of other Christian-run businesses that are not, you know, multinational, uh, huge organizations are out there? Um, yeah, I... I Lots of opportunities to tip towards politics in this book, but um, with Friedman, I thought that was a really interesting framework around the idea of capitalism and, and mindset of Christian ethics and not at all uh, an attack towards the, the idea of capitalism. But um, I love the ideas and the ideals, I should say, of libertarianism but the flaw in that is it does not accommodate for sin, right? The idea of let people interact and make arm's length transactions as they are willing person to person. Uh, and as it is mutually beneficial, they will do right by one another, right? Like that's kind of the idea of libertarianism. Until greed and lust and malice and all these things that are inherent in the world and in people because of sin come into that mix. And then that ideal is completely impossible. Um, and even, you know, a, a fantasy, I would say, 
um, as good as it may look on paper. Um, so yeah, that Christian ethics mindset is different from any other ethic. Uh, and to go all the way back to the beginning of the chapter and even the beginning of the book with the design of work, it's different because it's built around the idea of a creator and the design uh, in his image that we carry um, that none of those other, other frameworks for ethics even uh, consider, much less are they, are they built upon it. So. So in, in chapter 12, uh, we talk about a new power for work or a new motivation for work. Um, and I, you know, the, the example that he starts out with in the chapter of the doctor who's in the middle of a residency and is excited about the fact that for, their, for, for a moment in time in her life, she can be productive 100% of the time by being pregnant. Right, like she's doing something, even while she's sleeping, um, like is is humorous, um, but like at the same time. So, I was talking to Brian at, at dinner tonight. Like, I feel like in this particular chapter, like I am I am like the chief of all hypocrites today because this is the last obligation that stands between me and our last summer vacation. And so, like, my mind is just spun out with all the obligations that I haven't done this week that needed to get done before I go on vacation. And so, um, as he kind of walks through this idea of, like, a new motivation for why we work, but then also the gospel reality of rest and the requirement of rest, um, I'm not in a place where I feel like I can rest. And so it's, the timing is not uh, a coincidence, but it's just this interesting dichotomy of like how we have this, this motivation to work that is apart from economic gain. It's apart from status. It's apart from, or set apart from, you know, the ability to um, triumph or conquer it's ultimately founded in the gospel and where the Lord has us and has us to, to work and be. But then also that part of that is the clear command that we're supposed to rest and we're supposed to make time to rest and how hard that is in our culture, um, I think is, and, and, and this may be a little bit of like chronological snobbery, but I feel like it's, harder now to rest than maybe it's ever been before, but maybe that's not true. Um, but ultimately, like, it is really hard not to get emails on the weekend, not to get emails or email after hours or, at, you know, in the early in the morning and to set up those boundaries because, you know, ultimately, you know, we're, we're created to need rest. Like, God could have very easily created us to not need sleep. But ultimately, he created and wired our bodies to where we have to shut down or we become delusional and all sorts of bad. And so we, we rebel against that and we think that we can overcome that and conquer that. Or maybe it's just me that thinks that I can overcome that and conquer that. Um, but ultimately, like 
the gospel gives us this sweet comfort of like, you can rest um, and you can find your rest. So, you know, this, this chapter is, is pretty timely for me, but I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, one of the questions that was, that was in this chapter set was, have you felt that freedom in your work? Where like, ultimately you're not just doing the work for the work's sake, but you have found that new place, like he talks about in the scripture, where it's like the Lord's task that he's assigned you underneath the work that you're doing. Um, and so it's that sort of divine vocation that you might have in the work that you're doing. Um, have you ever felt that freedom, whether it's momentarily or, or in a significant way? And if you could share. struggle with that a lot. I mean, like, I, I enjoy what I do, but I would definitely say right now, like, I see it more as, like, a, a way to do the other things in life. And to, like, kind of, I, I don't, I don't know how, and there, there's been a couple times where I've definitely seen that, and, and in a way I feel called there, because, like, it's a place that, that, that I get to serve people and help people, and like I think overall as far as companies go I think you know I think values wise it's a it's one of the better places I can be at but I don't know like I, I definitely right now def see it as something that kind of like provides for my life and my hobbies and the things I do okay so uh, I want to chase that a little bit and say it helps you to do the other things are you able to see, it sounds like you're able to see the good and the service that comes through your work. Sure. Are you able to see that through the other things? Or how do those other things play? Because I, I would say there could be a framework of that being a, a nature of freedom, of not yeah. bound yeah. to the work as the goal, but I think there is also a little bit of well, the good in the other things we put our hands to, but beyond our jobs. So just just curious, what your thought is around? Yeah, that. I don't. A lot of the, a lot of like, I mean, base like I do a lot of hiking and woodworking and things. So those are, I guess, like sometimes I'll build something for someone, or but like mostly I guess those are more selfish things, like things I do for myself. So, you know, like, and, and I think you're right. I think the freedom could be that, like, I don't wake up dreading going to work. I don't, like, it's, like, I don't find, like, I, I out of habit, since I have a smartphone, I, I check emails, but I don't reply to emails typically on my days off. Like, I, I can, unless it's something easy or, like, it, it's just I have, have a minute. But, like, typically I don't, like, worry about work on my day off now. So I, I guess that's the main freedom I find right now that I haven't always had. Thanks. I think for me, um, I definitely go back and forth a little bit, but I think the way that my work is set up with it being part-time um, and like 9.30 till 5-ish, um, I feel like it lets it kind of be put off in a corner <laughs> where it's not the centerpiece. And I think for me, it allows me to be able to give more and enjoy more when I'm there and see more purpose in you know, what I'm actually doing. And sometimes I'm like, I need to work two days and not three days. Um, 
<laughs> and um, I think the, the, you know, for the days where it's just super long and draining and I'm like, oh my goodness, I just feel like I'm just <laughs> rolling through the cycles here. I, I can kind of fall back on, um, you know, working here is what we use for our giving fund. And so that's something that gets me very excited and I feel like it gives purpose to what I'm doing. So. Mm -hmm. You worked full-time previously? I was not working for five years before December. Um, before then, I worked for a year out of residency okay. in New Mexico full-time. So do you feel like the paradigm you describe now is a better place of freedom? I think it's way before? better. Yeah. Um, I think then, too, I mean, life was different. I was a single person living on my own in Roswell, New Mexico. You know, there wasn't much else to do. But work, <laughs> you know. But here, it's kind of nice to have, you know, my long weekends, room with the kids, room with the hubs, and so it's not. Um, it doesn't feel like it's taking over, but and I, I, I had to just consciously going into it. I tell myself at the end of the day when I get home, even if there are twenty notes, I just have to put those aside. We do dinner, we do bath time, we do bedtime, and then I go work on my notes. And I try to get them that same day so that, you know, on my Wednesdays when I'm off or Saturdays, Sundays, Mondays, I don't log on to the computer. I don't, you know, and I'm not, it's not like it's on my shoulders. I'm, you know, there are other people working there. So somebody else <laughs> should handle it, <laughs> you know. So it, it is kind of a little bit freeing in that aspect. Uh, last year was my first, like, full year with my company, and I felt like I was trying to prove myself, trying to make sure I took on a ton of projects. You know, I was working long hours, and just felt like I was trying to earn it, you know, trying to make sure the earnest here at the table, right? And coming out of last year, I had a pretty honest conversation with my, with my, uh, my VP, according to, and um, I kind of told him my goals this year was to make sure that I really kind of make sure and prioritize my family time outside of it. He's a, he's a believer as well. So I got to kind of talk to him about like my real purpose in life is not to work at Kahua. It's it's to be here and like provide for my family and be with my family. And like my mission field is in my home, right? And yes, I get to interact with a lot of people on my team that I, that I lead and get to work with the part of that mission field as well. But like the, what I'm really called to do is home. And I feel like after I've been able to have that conversation and then try to live a happier end for a fiscal, I guess, this year, um, it's been like, it's been better to try to be more intentional about like leaving things and, and not staying at the office as long and not taking on <coughs> all the extra projects. And still trying to again do a, a produce high quality work and get more things done. But like, being able to communicate that, know that my boss like, kind of understands where I'm coming from, like has my back in that, but also like I feel like it's helped me like enjoy going into the office more and enjoy the work more from just like always having to be clicking at all hours of the night, you know, trying to figure out how X product can be delivered and family suffering. So I'm in a better place than I've ever been, I guess is what I'm saying. I think where I struggle with that is <clears throat> the nature of my job, you know, being over security and emergency management or response at a hospital is that stuff can kick off at any time. 
And so trying to find the balance and when the phone rings at 8 o'clock at night because there's an incident going on at the hospital that I might have to step into and stuff. And, and that's part of the nature of the job. And you know, when I interviewed my boss, she said, you know, this is in a lot of ways a 24-7 job. Like, you know, something might happen at 3 in the morning that you'll have to answer the phone or, or I don't really have to go in a whole lot, but every now and then. And so it's trying to find that balance of in order to do my job effectively, I do have to be available and, you know, answer when certain people call. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, recognizing like the place isn't going to burn down, but also, you know, what is the expectations of your boss and, the, the, and fulfilling your responsibilities. So. It's really hard to understand those expectations when you, when you, like for me, I struggle to have that conversation with my bosses, boss, like ultimately. So I, I report to our managing partner is primarily who my boss is. And, um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to find that balance in whatever relationship you have because you want to take on the projects and do more and be in, and kind of earn your seat at the table, right? And that, I feel like that pressure only gets harder um, as the table gets smaller or as the higher up you go. But it, it, it's always difficult to figure, find that balance and being able to have that conversation is probably... Um, one of the best things that I appreciate, or one of the one of the things I really appreciate about our current managing partner is, like he's been clear to me, like you're on vacation, I'll call you if there's an emergency, but otherwise you don't have to take any of the other partners' calls, because we wouldn't take your call if you were if we were on vacation. And I was like, that's a different perspective, not the one I had, but um, I don't know. That is a difficult one to figure out and then the worry piece I think you were you know you were talking about like being awake at night and worrying and not being able to shut it off or compartmentalize it like I am awful at that um and um that's probably that is one of the hardest things for me about finding rest and going on vacation is like I it's hard to turn it off and um haven't figured that one out yet I will work in my all weekend. Uh, I literally, when I'm stressed out, I work in my sleep. Like I am dreaming that I am solving whatever issue is stressing me out. Uh, and then I wake up and I'm texting myself or emailing myself notes. Right? I mean, it's. Uh, uh, it's so it's so toxic. It is. But it's like it, that has been the way that my body deals with that stress for for 15 years. But I think the the chapter talks about it in that, like that in that 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 incessant cycle of worry is not rest, right? It talks about how like the biblical mandate for agriculture was use the field for six and let it rest for seven, for the seventh. And we haven't we've leveraged technology and resources to the point where like we can't turn it off. 
and that's the I don't know that that's a that's a dangerous place for us to be because we're so busy that we don't we don't work at the proper rhythm to allow us to have a good gospel perspective or I don't I won't prescribe that on y'all but I I know I don't um when I'm in that place, it's because I believe I am the solution. Yeah. Like, I am not trusting the Lord. I'm not trusting my team. I am believing that I am the only one who can fix the solution. I'm absolutely lying. Because every company I've ever worked for did what they did before I got there. And everyone I've ever left did what they did before I left. So I just don't matter as much as I like to think I do. I don't struggle with that piece as much as I do the, I guess, you know, am I available, am I, like, if I need to answer the phone, and I don't know if that's because, like, you know, in, in law enforcement, you realize very quickly, like, you know, how limited, like, I don't know how limited your impact can be, but, like, when you're responding to types of emergencies, like it just I, maybe it just changes your perspective, and it's you're like, okay, well, I'm not going to get so worked up. I don't have three people shot right here, dying because you know we can't get them to the hospital. So it's like it's it's be like, well, yeah, that problem at work is not nearly as big as, as that was, right? And so that's not where I struggle, but where my struggle is is like the worry of, well, what if the COO calls me? Yeah. Your door that's not operating appropriately is not as important as your car. I think every every role is different, but like the in my healthier moments, the grace or wisdom that the Lord allows is to remind me like ultimately my value and my worth and my identity is not found in was I available to take that call and when I first started at Thomas I group I felt like I had to answer every doctor's call when they called and at some point I just stopped answering it and when I called them back like eight times out of ten they'd found somebody to solve their problem that was at a more appropriate level like their local practice manager or somebody like that. Not encouraging you to ignore Jay's calls or Skip's calls or whoever, but um, <laughs> like at the end of the day, um, like sometimes people just call until somebody answers the phone. Um, and doctors are, my doctors, not all doctors, but my doctors um, are, are pretty bad at that. So... <laughs> Team member, I told you a few weeks ago. Team member resigned. That that threshold of when things are worth a call. I got. A, I was in a meeting one day. Got a text. I need you to call me ASAP. We have a situation. So that was great. Like, <laughs> this is like our primary interface with our clients. Something's going on. What's wrong? So and so, new team member we just hired, doesn't have Microsoft Office on their computer. I'm like, hold on. 
organization chart. <laughs> you went all the way to the top for Microsoft Office? <laughs> really? It's like, you gotta be kidding me. But yeah, yeah, sometimes uh, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. Is the thing the issue? Is it all that that person thinks it is? And a lot of the times it's not. Yeah. So I think the, the place that I kind of want to end our conversation on is um, how, do you, how do you rest? How do you take that time and make the, the, the proper priorities, our mission field, our families, our wives, our, even, and even before that, our relationship with the Lord? and our obedience to him. How do you keep that perspective or what accountability do you have around you to help you um, clarify that perspective? Because I know I can't, I can't keep it. Um, it goes in and out of focus like about as often as the lens on a camera. So. I've put more focus on it since I've been a dad than I did before. Like we try to mark, I mean, we've, we've picked up some package from other people, right? But we, we, uh, we try to mark every Sunday, and that's kind of our Sabbath day as a family. Like we, we mark Sundays, we start off, we, we all like we Seminoles every Sunday morning. And so we Sabbath Seminoles is kind of how we do it. So like we make them together as a family. We try to talk about what this means and just try to mark so the kids understand that there was a day set aside that's different than the rest, right? It doesn't have to be that, it can be something else. And then we try to get like all of our yard work done or everything else done around that Sunday. It doesn't always work that way. We're running around the first day parties or whatever else sometimes. It doesn't yeah. that. But, but we, we try to do something different on that day to set it aside. Um, but I think imperfectly is, is my answer. Like I, yeah. I can always do a better job of really Yeah. certain time. 
I try to do bedtime with my kids uh, at night. Um, though I will admit that suffers if I feel like I am in a rush to get back to my office after they're asleep. So that's that imperfectly, right? Um, Friday night movie nights. Um, though the fifth or sixth time you watch Frozen, it's a whole lot easier to take a nap during family movie night. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, imperfectly. Uh, we've been doing Tuesday nights with uh, aunt and uncle cousins and grandparents at the pool this summer, though half of those I have been in different states. So, uh, it's a hard discipline for me. It really is. And I, I tend to get in a spot of, yeah, but I'm better than I used to be, right? Like, mm. that. hey, I, I, you know, I used to be gone a lot, right? So give me some, <laughs> right? So, um, and I say I because, I mean, I just believe as a husband and father, it's my responsibility to lead and set the tone in that. So um, that's why I speak in that way because that tends, I believe that tends to drive the way that works for the rest of our home. But I'm not, I'm not really great at it. Ben and I talk about this a lot. Starla and Amanda probably talk about that a lot too, <laughs> but um, not my strong suit, unfortunately. Yeah. I have been, for the last week and a half probably, um, every time I have sat down and prayed about my day and this vacation we have coming up, um, I don't know if I shared this, but my my son was um, it's really not true. So our our baseball team in the spring, uh, the coach of that baseball team asked me to co-coach All Stars with him, and it was because um, on May first his wife got diagnosed with cancer, and they were going through the midst of all of that and struggling with that challenge. And they've got three young kids that are about the same age as mine. Um, and so his ask was that we coach to help out and be available, somebody you could trust to pick up a practice here and there, which I did uh, inconsistently to your point. Like sometimes I had work and meetings and that's the joy of running a medical practice is doctors like to meet after hours because if you take them out of clinic, they stop making money and their whole point is to make money. So they like to meet between the hours of 5 and 10 p.m. because um, they don't think anybody else works between 7 and 5 p.m. Um, so, uh, you know, at the, at the end of the day, like it's been a pretty traumatic summer. Uh, his wife passed two weeks ago. Um, and the, the crazy, just as sitting at the memorial service in a celebration of life was the picture they had of their Christmas vacation and spring break, spring break vacation and their summer vacation last summer. Like the Lord was like, they didn't have a clue. And like remember, like value the time that you have. And so, um, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I feel like it's a little bit edgy, but at the same time, like I feel like the Lord's impression on my heart for this next week is like, what if this were the last vacation you got with your kids? What if this was the last time you got to spend twelve hours driving to Ohio? Um, for that destination vacation in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, but like at the end of the day, like just making the most of the time that we have, I think is, is not the like the fear of 
the uncertainty because at the end of the day, like the Lord will take care of my kids and my family if that's his will, but making the most of the time we have. We do it so often at work. We do it so easy at work to be efficient, to be productive. But I think the Lord's call for us is when we rest or when we're with our families, are we that? Are we as intentional with that time as we are when you're on a Zoom call or when you're leading a meeting or when you're prepping for a board meeting or whatever? So, um, yeah, I hope you guys have enjoyed the book. It's one of Brian and I's favorites. Um, it's one of it's one that I read very often. I think I shared that with you guys earlier. Um, and then again, you know, if you have any questions or um, need any other recommendations, Brian and I get endorsements for about 150 other books. So um, just let us know and we'll send you our Amazon account. Just kidding. Um, but, you know, it would encourage you all to, to be intentional with the time to remember that, like, the Lord's call on us is not for us to be obsessed with our work, right? Our priority is our relationship with Him first. And then there are several other priorities after that before you get to work. Um, and and to, to find accountability and to find folks that will help you keep that in perspective and to beg the Lord to give you the grace to live that out um, more frequently than you do today. Thank you.